Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first-time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host, you can call her Husey, Leanne Hughes. Hey everyone and welcome to episode 27 of the podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes. Now, usually on the show, I interview amazing facilitators, speakers and leaders. However, I'm going solo for today. This is the third solo episode I've recorded, and these ones are usually spurred on by questions that I receive from you, the listener. Now, before I share that question and respond, there are a few key things I want to highlight if you'd like to interact further with me or with the show. Now, every month I share some really cool apps, articles, and other podcast episodes that I'm geeking out on, and you can sign up to that monthly newsletter. It's called The Flip Chart. You can find it on my website at firsttimefacilitator.com. You can follow me on Instagram for episode updates and behind the scenes images at firsttimefacilitator, or shoot me a tweet at Leanne Hughes. Any kind of items I reference in this episode are up on the show notes page, including a full transcript at firsttimefacilitator.com slash episode 27. So the question this week was from a colleague and it was this, Leanne, how did you get the confidence to speak in front of large groups? Well, there's a bit to unpack in that question and it's different for everyone. And I guess what's so interesting about the question is it's all about getting the confidence and not about developing the skill. Uh, I do believe the two go hand in hand. The more that you develop the skill, the more confident you are, but it can be a chicken and egg kind of thing where you might not be confident, but you just need to push yourself out there. So there's no short answer to this. And it really forced me to reflect back on what were the opportunities that I had, which is what I'm going to share in this episode. In saying that, I'm still human and continue to question my ability before accepting opportunities. However, after talking to fellow facilitators and speakers on the podcast, that appears to be a fairly normal response. And I guess the good thing about having that type of response is that it keeps you on your toes and not operating in autopilot. The definition of a large group is also different for everyone. Uh, I think it's anything above, say, 30 people. From my experience, anything above 30 or around the 40 range requires a microphone, probably a stage, and you're under some pretty big, intimidating, bright lights. In October 2014, I was living in a small coastal regional town in Western Australia called Broome. I talk about Broome in a lot of episodes as I have really fond memories there. Like imagine a place where in winter you can swim at the beach, but in summer it's way too hot to do anything. The population is very small, about 15,000 people, and the closest town is a two-hour drive away. The nearest capital city is in, well, it is Jakarta, Indonesia. So you don't really do things there. Your weekend plans are dictated by the tide times. Everyone drives a four-wheel drive and you spend most of your time in either air conditioning or down the beach camping and fishing with a cold beer in hand. It was wonderful. However, living there for three and a half years, you can become pretty complacent. And outside of work, I wasn't really achieving a lot. I wanted to create some more discipline for myself. I thought I would set myself a ridiculous goal, something that would get me out of bed nice and early quite literally, and that was to run a marathon. It was a big goal because growing up, I hated running. I loved playing netball, but I loathed the fitness element. I associated running with everything negative in life. 
However, living in this coastal town, there were no hills, no traffic, and because nothing really happened in town, I had lots of time up my sleeve, and this gave me the ultimate entry point to start, so I signed up for the Gold Coast Marathon. Now, not having a clue on how to pursue this big goal, I enlisted a coach, and his name is Pat Carroll. He's actually won a few Gold Coast Marathons. My goal, however, was to simply finish it under five hours. I'm sharing this story as there were a couple of words and phrases that he said that I think can generally be applied to the question about gaining confidence and speaking in front of large groups. I'll drop one of those phrases now and then again a bit later on in the episode. Oh, by the way, I delivered a Pecha Kucha speech on my experience running a marathon, which I'll link to in the show notes. Anyway, Pat said that a lot of people approach runs and start cross-training, i.e. they do weights, they swim or cycle. But he said... And gosh, it sounds so bloody simple, honestly. And you're probably going to think I'm crazy to highlight this as some kind of watershed moment, but it was for me. Uh, He said that the best way to train for a marathon is to simply run. You need to start banking those kilometres on your legs. You don't need to do Pilates or swim or hike or play touch footy. Just run. Run and bank those kilometres on your legs. And I love that concept of banking kilometres. And I banked thousands of kilometres on my legs in those nine months training for that marathon. My most recent podcast guest, Neen James, agrees with this. And if you listen to my conversation with Neen in episode 26, you would have heard her mention the phrase, time on your feet. So my short answer to the question, how did I get the confidence to speak in public? Well, it was really about banking that time on my feet as a speaker. That leads into the next question. How do you find time on your feet? So, when a marathon-like speaking opportunity comes along, you're prepared. If you go through school and uni, that's a good start, and there are opportunities there like high school English class presentations or the dreaded group assignment prezzo at university. But I've also loved seeing others kill it on stage. I've always been fascinated by the power of strong delivery and what brilliant presentation looks like. I guess that's the difference I brought, was to continually ask myself, every time I had time on my feet... What can I do that's different? Who is in the audience? What do they want? What is the hook? When I really think about why I care so much about making sure my message hits, it probably comes back to my philosophy about how I think life is just way too short. Back in episode 16, I spoke with Adam Musto about the Gallup Strengths Finder 2, and my second highest strength theme is Maximizer. Now, the Maximizer theme is really around things like, you know, do you want fries with that and taking advantage of opportunities. You do get caught out sometimes, particularly when traveling as you want to cram and juggle everything into a day. That's what maximizers do. Now, how this theme plays out also is that if I'm given the opportunity to present in front of other people, I want to maximize that moment. I believe that you are in a position of great opportunity the second that you have more than two people in the room. And life is too short to have your time wasted by boring, irrelevant and unmemorable presentations. So when you're the one in front of that room, just don't waste everyone's time. And I guess for me, that's my real driver for doing things a bit differently. I was lucky getting into netball from the age of 10 and through the game, I've been given opportunities to speak in front of others at occasions from, you know, speaking in team huddles during quarter breaks to club presentation nights and dinners. In university, I started coaching more junior teams and I believe that being a coach had a significant impact on my ability to deliver a message succinctly and to project my voice, particularly when you have quarter breaks and halftime breaks to do that, you know, they go for say three to five minutes and your audience are 13 to 15 year olds. 
My first official MC gig was as an on-court announcer for the Queensland State League Netball Finals back in 2003. I called on the teams, thanked sponsors, talked through key highlights of the match. And look, through this, I learned about the importance of timekeeping, how to speak clearly into a microphone, and the realisation that the role of MC is so much more than just the delivery. There's a lot of background work involved in who you need to liaise with, what your backup plans are, etc. Now, when you start doing this sort of stuff, the people around you hear about it and that opens doors as an MC. Um, I was asked then to MC friends' weddings. Now, if you ever asked to MC a wedding, please, first-time facilitators, say yes uh, for two reasons in particular. One, uh, it keeps you off the booze for a few hours that you can avoid a painful hangover. It can be quite healthy for you. And two, the skill to being a wedding MC is about really making it a personal experience. So the experience forces you to tailor your message for the couple, family and friends. Having that first wedding MC gig, again, opened up more invites to MC other events. So can you see from a few of these stories how the whole journey works? And if we're relating speaking back to running... I believe these school netball and uni presentations were about, you know, five kilometre runs. Emceeing a wedding, for me, is a half marathon. And unfortunately, similarly to running, you can't go cold turkey for six months and then expect to run at the same pace you did while training. So how can you continue to get that experience and bank those kilometres? I know a lot of you listeners are split, probably about 50% working in full-time roles and 50% freelancing and consulting. For those working, there are so many opportunities to put your hand up and deliver presentations from where you stand. So I thought I'd share a few examples of how I got my step up and got those runs on the board in terms of speaking. While I was working in marketing for a company called Wicked Campers, we were sponsors of the annual Backpacker Travel Expo in Melbourne. Now, as part of the sponsorship package, the company was offered an opportunity to run some sessions about travelling around Australia. I put my hand up. In my role working in government in regional WA, we had a fortnightly Friday morning meeting. Uh, It was like a video hookup with the other campuses in the region, and this was called Communications Corridor. I needed to share some internal messages, so I put my hand up and asked to be on the agenda pretty frequently. I also challenged myself to outdo my previous presentations over and over again. When it came to Friday morning, I also felt like whacking myself on the head and questioning myself and volunteering for these sessions and putting myself under undue pressure. You know, it would have been so much easier not volunteering and sitting in the crowd every fortnight. But... When we held a professional development week for all 200 staff in the region, guess who was asked to emcee that event? One final example. In late 2016, I was asked to co-facilitate some leadership training in Brisbane. A few months later, and I was on board a flight to Canada to run the same workshop over there. Time on your feet. Not only does it give you more time to practice your presentation skills and experiment with content, but more importantly, you also get used to that feeling of being uncomfortable. You get comfortable with being uncomfortable. It also leads you to good things and great opportunities that you would never have realised. Every time that you step up, it's a real opportunity for you to market yourself and build your personal brand. You get luckier. I think the best analogy that sums this up is the one that I heard recently on episode number 49 of the Jordan Harbinger Show. In this episode, Jordan chats to Alex Banayan Banayan, about mentoring. In fact, it's so good, I'm going to play a five-minute segment of that interview for you. And it wasn't until I met this man, his name is Chi Lu, that I really understood the role luck plays 
and success. So this guy, almost, you know, no one's heard of him. He grew up in a village outside of Shanghai, China, with no running water, no electricity. In his village, for every 300 kids, there was one teacher. Yikes. Right. So, you know, you probably couldn't count on an unluckier hand to be dealt. Oh, man. Now, fast forward 20 years later, and he's a president at Microsoft. And I sat down with him, and this the story is, no one knows the story because Chi Lu believes that every hour he talks to a journalist is an hour he's not contributing back to the world. Like, he's that kind sure. of guy. And you're like, thankfully, I'm a teenager, not a journalist, so <laughs> we're okay. You know, that's actually why he did the interview, because I was a college student. I was 18 years old. And I, I sat there trying to understand there had to be some crazy luck in his story, and I actually found out there was. So Chi Lu realized that... You know, there are so many brilliant, brilliant young people in China who are all dying to get the same one dream, which is to go to America to study in an American university. And Chi knew that, you know, relying on just his talent alone was, you know, idiotic. He needed to create a system to give himself an edge. So he went to the library and started researching all these famous people in history who had re-engineered their sleep patterns. You know, Da Vinci and Thomas Edison. And he realizes, you know, he, he needs to create his own system because his thinking is that if he's spending eight hours in bed like everyone else, if he can find a way to cut that down, that will give him, you know, months of productivity per year. But he creates what he calls chi time, which added two months of productivity per year. And finally, one Sunday night when he was in college, a visiting professor from Carnegie Mellon was at the university to give a guest lecture. And it was a Sunday night. And normally on Sunday nights, Chi rides his bike back to his village to visit his parents. But because it was raining, that was the first Sunday night he was ever in his dorm room in years or in months. And a friend knocked on the door, asked Chi to come down to fill the seats. And Chi goes down there. And during the lecture, the professor compliments him on asking such good questions. And at the end of the lecture, he asked Chi if he had done any research on the topic. Chi hadn't done some research. He had written five entire papers on the topic. And that was the, you know, that's the power of Chi time. He was not only the most prepared person in the room, he was miles ahead of everyone else. So he runs, the professor asks to see the papers, he runs to his dorm room, gets them, they're like sitting on his desk, he runs back, gives them to the professor. On the spot, the professor starts reading them. He asks Chi if he's ever wanted to come to America and study, and Chi tells him it's his biggest dream, but he can't afford to take the entrance exams because the $1 a month he makes extra goes to his parents. On the spot, the professor offers to waive the fees, and two months later, Chi gets a letter saying that he got a full ride to Carnegie Mellon. Now, on the one hand, that's probably one of the luckiest stories I've ever heard, because every Sunday, religiously, he leaves campus to go visit his parents. The only Sunday that he was there so happened to be the day that Carnegie Mellon professor was there. But on the other hand, there was nothing lucky about him being the only one in the room who had done five research papers on that topic. This isn't really the role that luck plays for a lot of people. People think, oh, this guy 
just happened to be at this university and then the professor walked in and said, hey, I need a research assistant for this virtual reality thing I'm going to try out and suddenly or this Internet thing that I think is going to be a hit. And he's the only person who takes the gig because he has no other choice. That's that's the luck that I think most people are envisioning in their head. And it's never I've never in seven years of studying this, not a single person who I interviewed ever had that fantasy of luck that for some reason movies and television propagate. Yeah, it's not Goodwill Hunting where he's like it, it's never drawing on like the blackboard that. and the math professor walks by and goes, "By golly, you're correct." Exactly. Right? That's not that's not what happens. What happens is this guy was so damn prepared that mm-hmm. when his opportunity did arrive, he went, "Oh yeah, I just happen to have a stack of qualifications." Now the the opportunity, the timing Happened to be fortuitous, but had he not had a stack of papers, he just would have been the guy putting out and filling the chairs. Bingo. Yeah. And what, you know, the quote Chilu told me in the interview, he said, luck is like a bus. If you're not prepared, the next one's going to show up if you're standing at the right bus stop. But, you know, your preparation is your fee to get onto that bus. If you don't have it, no matter how many times you wait at that bus stop, you won't be able to get on. How good is that? So again, when I reflect on that question, how did you get the confidence to speak in front of large groups? Well, as you can see, it's an evolution piece underpinned by three things. Number one, bank that time on your feet. Number two, put your hand up and find the opportunities. And number three, every time you have an opportunity to present, challenge yourself to outperform your previous presentation. The second piece of advice from my running coach, Pat Carroll, was not to be concerned by the fact that your longest training run does not take you near 42.2 kilometers. Save yourself for the marathon. Prepare consistently, stay injury-free, and your solid preparation combined with race day atmosphere will allow you to go all the way. I love this. Nothing will prepare you for that marathon moment in front of hundreds of people with the spotlight on you, but you'll get pretty close by banking the thousands of kilometers prior. And you can be confident to accept the opportunity given the success you've had in the past. So that's a bit of my story and how I developed my confidence. I'd love to know how you got your experience and how will you find that time on your feet? Where are you banking your speaking kilometres? Let me know your thoughts. Uh, Shoot me a tweet at Leanne Hughes or on the show notes page, firsttimefacilitator.com slash episode 27. You can leave a comment underneath there and let me know what you're doing to get more speaking kilometres under your feet. Thank you for listening to the First Time Facilitator podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to keep up to date with all the episodes, make it easy for yourself and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player and leave a review in iTunes. Um, Every bit helps. Thanks again and speak to you all next Monday.